turn, if you will, to Luke chapter 11. We're going to see how far we get. It's um, an interesting passage, and I keep rolling this this depressing uh, yet uh, truthful board behind me, which we're still there. And there's a sense in which when you begin Genesis, you're there, and when you end Revelation, you're there. Uh, you don't ever get away from, from this either-or aspect of the world we live in. Um, <clears throat> Jesus, as, as you remember, we've been in this section, this big, big section, will be there a long time in Luke, uh, where the, the notions of where he is and, and when this all goes down is, is irrelevant. What it is is, is Luke uh, garnering and encapsulating events in the life of Jesus that all make sense when you see them on a continuum. And uh, where he has been, I will uh, just read you a, a, a sentence from Phil Riken that I mentioned last week. Moral reformation without spiritual regeneration leads to demonic domination. Uh, we looked at that last week a little, and that is... Um, as valid today as it was a week ago in the passage we're about to take on. These, uh, from verse 37 all the way through to the end of this chapter, is signs of spiritual death. Signs of folks uh, going to this side of the sign rather than that side of the sign. Let's just pick up, uh, <clears throat> I'm going to go uh, piecemeal through it. There, there are seven woes that we're going to encounter in between verses 37 and 54. Uh, actually, technically, the word woe, you will see only six times, but there is a seventh uh, concern. Now, before we get into all the woes, uh, I just, uh, just a word of a it was helpful to me at least. The word woe, when we hear woe, we, we think threat. Uh, woe is you, uh, boom, it's coming. Uh, the word woe is, is used here by Jesus as a lament, more as sadness, more as regret, more as, as um, he's going to be talking to Pharisees and scribes, people of the law, uh, people of the book if you will, in a certain sense. And uh, what Jesus is going to uh, be saying to them is you will regret the positions you are taking relative to the word, relative to the law, relative to what I've given you to speak. And it begins, um, <clears throat> I'll just go through a, a quick over, uh, overarching summary of this. It's going to begin with a dinner engagement. A Pharisee is going to ask Jesus to eat with him. We've seen this happen before. It normally is a setup. Uh, the Pharisees have been out to get Jesus from the very beginning because he's a threat to them. He's, he's showing them up for who they really are. And this is going to be no different. It's going to begin with, with a, uh, an invitation. And from that, it's going to flow, from this one meal, it's going to flow these seven uh, criticisms the first one is, uh, woe is me when I appear outwardly godly, but am inwardly godless. 
that's going to be verse 37 to 41. And, and keep in mind everything that is being said here by Jesus uh, to the Pharisees, to the scribes, and, and everyone else is certainly uh, an open possibility uh, of, of sinfulness in our own hearts, in our own actions, in our own ways of living the Christian life or pretending to live the Christian life. Uh, so this first one, when I appear outwardly godly, but I'm inwardly godless. The second one, when I focus on personal minutia and ignore God's commands, verse 42. Third one, when I obsess over my own spiritual accomplishments, verse 43. Fourth one, when I die spiritually on the inside and invite others to follow me there, verse 44. A fifth one, when I weigh others down with my legalism, verses 45 and 46. Sixth one, when I murderously rebel against God's word, verses 47 to 51. And finally, the seventh, woe when I teach falsely and block others from God, verses 52 to 54. Now, all of these, again, because Jesus is speaking with Pharisees and scribes, he's talking to the religious leadership of the culture. Uh, I'm going to probably go further than I should in, in talking about the religious leadership of our culture because I, I worked at um, a seminary for 23 years and I've seen a lot of, of the theories behind the training of, of men for the gospel ministry. And um, I'll see how uh, intrepid I become uh, or cowardly uh, as the case may be when we get to those sections. But uh, he's, Jesus is reiterating to these Pharisees and scribes exactly what he's been telling every one of us through the first uh, 10 and a half chapters here. Uh, he wants his people, you and me, to be humble, compassionate, loving, and forgiving. But what these Pharisees and scribes have become are proud, indifferent, self-serving, and hypocritical. Again, I, it would, I'd love to tell you that is something that the, the scribes and the Pharisees uh, had the market cornered. It is not, um, we're all sinful people and these things are uh, potential problems for all of us. Uh, Phil Riken again, when he gets uh, to this section, Phil, of course, uh, Phil and, and Rick were, were uh, associate pastors under Jim Boyce at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. Uh, we're all Westminster guys. And um, here's what Phil says about this. He says, quote, what's the biggest danger the church faces in the 21st century? According to Jesus, referring to this passage we're undertaking, the gravest danger may come from theologically informed, religiously active, morally conservative people whose hearts are far from God. That's quite a uh, quite an indictment, but um, but it's valid, and I would argue that um, in today's world, that's precisely what we're seeing grievously in the country in which we now live. The church has largely left its roots; it has uh, left the scriptures, and it's. I, I saw a snippet. I pray I misunderstood what I saw. And what I thought I heard, some of you may have seen it. I, I assume it was on Fox News. I don't know where it was, but apparently there was some church pastor someplace 
that thinks it's a brilliant idea to let AI loose in the church because AI may lead us into deeper spiritual truth than we could have known otherwise. Anybody see that? And, and can inject truth? I immediately left the room, uh, uh, but um, that's, a, that's a perfect illustration. I, some of the other things you hear about AI, by the way, are, are false scriptures coming out uh, where, where words are, are frankly abused and misused. Uh, that is nothing more than a technological rendition of what we're reading about here in Luke chapter 11. It is perfectly uh, amenable to the sinful heart. And again, each one of us needs to be aware as we go through this. We'll look first at uh, verses 37 to 41. This is the first woe. This is the one that does not contain the word woe, but it's in here. 37 to 41 says, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Uh, there's, there's a lot uh, that uh, Jesus is complaining about here. But again, the Pharisee has asked Jesus in uh, for dinner and he, he accepts, he always accepts those offers. Uh, there was a little booklet, uh, My Heart, Christ's Home, something like, something to that effect. Uh, there are parts of it that I really uh, wish had gone in another direction, but it's an interesting take on what happens if you ask Jesus into your house for dinner. Uh, we all know what we would do, of course. We would, we would have the dining room, we would have the living room uh, sparkling and ready and, and uh, laid out, and we'd have various rooms of the house shut. The doors would be closed because we don't want Jesus going into the bedroom. We don't want Jesus uh, going into where we didn't have time to clean it properly. Uh, very similar to, to what's going on here, uh, the problem is Jesus will enter every room in your house, and he does enter every room, whether or not you have invited him. Uh, and uh, dirt and all, Jesus is there to address it. And this is going to happen uh, in real time here with, with this Pharisee who thinks, uh, this, is, this apparently is a, is a gathering. They're, the scribes that Jesus is going to talk to, as well as these Pharisees, are all here reclining at the table. That's what they did. They laid down. Uh, so they're all around this table and uh, they, they think, of course, they've ganged up on him. There's multiple of them and only one of Jesus. Uh, so that is, is the setting here. And uh, verse 38, the Pharisee is astonished that Jesus didn't wash his hands before dinner. Now, Kent uh, Hughes uh, in his commentary on Luke, <clears throat> uh, at this particular point, this by the way, volume two, don't, don't be thrown off that he's gone 11 chapters and only said this. Uh, it's very, very good. Uh, Kent Hughes is a, is a good man and a good commentary here. But here's, he quotes from the Mishnah. This is, this is what is bugging the Pharisee. Here is what the Mishnah records in the ritual, ritual hand washing 
Uh, the hands are susceptible to uncleanness and they are rendered clean by the pouring over them of water up to the wrist. Thus, if a man had poured the first water up to the wrist and the second water beyond the wrist, wrist, the water flowed back to the hand, the hand becomes clean. But if he poured both the first water and the second beyond the wrist and the water flowed back to the hand, the hand remains unclean. If he poured the first water over the one hand alone and then bethought himself and poured the second water over the one hand, this one hand alone is clean. If he had poured the water over the one hand and rubbed it on the other, it becomes unclean. But if he rubbed it on his head or on the wall to dry it, it remains clean. Uh, I'm not going to go on any further. You get the point. Uh, these, these, uh, these are the religious leaders of the culture. And they're laying out. Uh, and we have these people among us today. Uh, there, there are some uh, folks who are today, we, we label some of these, this, these are not the only ones, but, but some who are called theonomists, uh, who focus on the law. They, they're Old Testament focused. Nothing wrong with that unless you leave it at the law. Jesus is going to have here in this passage a lot to say about that. Uh, but you have legalists everywhere you go today uh, I don't know that I've run into anybody quite that that way, but uh, at any rate, that's what Jesus, that's, that's why he's, he's there. And this Pharisee wants to catch Jesus in a legal faux pas. He's, he's, the Pharisee knows all of this kind of thing. Jesus knows it as well. And Jesus wants to get caught. Jesus wants to illustrate a thing or two that this Pharisee has not considered. Uh, so Jesus just reclines at table and doesn't wash his hands at all. Imagine when this Pharisee uh, is astonished, it says. Pharisee is astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Well, I don't think many people would ever pass this muster with this particular Pharisee. But at any rate, uh, Jesus uh, responds in verses 39, 40, and 41. Uh, and he says, you, you folks, you Pharisees, you legalists, you clean the outside. That's legalism, making everything on the outside look good, making, making church look good, making, making everything look good about my life. But you're unclean on the inside, full of greed and wickedness are the two things that Jesus mentions in this passage. And he says, uh, you're fools. You're, you're missing the whole thing. Give his alms what is within and everything will be clean. In other words, I'm looking at your heart, Pharisee, Christian, uh, every human on the planet. I'm looking at your heart, Jesus says today to us. And he exposes self-righteousness. He exposes pride. Uh, he cares about as much for the inside as for the outside. In, in fact, quite frankly, um, while the outside is important, the outside is going to be our behavior in certain circumstances. The behavior is going to come from what's on the inside. It's going to come from our hearts. Uh, there's a saying that we enjoy, what I do in private with my own private life is my concern alone, but that is not true to God. Uh, God is looking on the inside constantly. He's looking at us when we're alone. He's, in fact, I would argue he's looking at us, especially when we're alone. Uh, and where our lives tend to take us in those uh, those moments. 
Uh, here's a couple of, of uh, quotes from Isaiah 29, verse 13. This people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. So what Jesus is doing here is not a New Testament change to an Old Testament law. The prophets of old looked on the heart also. First Samuel 16, seven, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Isaiah, Amos, uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, you can go to any of the prophets and the whole emphasis that God brings through those men is I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want your, your detailed uh, scurrying around over bring this animal if you've committed that sin, but if you committed that sin with that particular aspect to it, then don't bring this animal, bring this. The whole thing, the whole aspect, the whole approach to God with a legalistic intent, ignoring my own heart position was, uh, was lambasted by every prophet in the scriptures. Psalm 51 from David, famous Psalm of repentance. Verse 10, created me a right heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart of God. You will not despise. I can't read these passages without thinking of Romans chapter seven, when Paul is, is uh, think about what Paul as a Pharisee, not only a Pharisee, but a Pharisee of Pharisees, Paul knew that Mishnah, Paul knew all of those things, but he had been genuinely converted and he looks in, in Romans 7, he looks in his own heart and he doesn't like what he sees there. And he cries out, wretched man that I am. That is, is the position uh, in the very next verse. He goes, he, he says, but, but I've got Jesus. I've got forgiveness in Jesus if I am repentant in my heart. Uh, that as a pastor, probably the most common concern that enters a pastor's study or, or office or uh, street corner life, wherever, is from an individual who's concerned with whether or not they're really a believer. Uh, how do I know I'm really a Christian? I, I, I'm a sinner. I've done these things over and over again. There are many ways to answer that question, and every one of them I want to, uh, to temper relative to the person I'm speaking with, but one that, that never ever leaves is how do you feel when you have sinned? Do you, number one, are you aware of the concept of sin? Number two, when you have become aware of it in your own heart, in your own life, how do you react to it? Does it bother you? Do you, do you feel a sense that you have offended a holy God? Do you need to go to Jesus for repentance? Do you in fact do that? That to me is a, a bellwether uh, to know that, that I'm a believer. And I think that's what uh, Paul illustrates there. And it's what Jesus is, is getting at with these individuals. In verse 41, he goes to the notion of alms. Uh, that was a, a very, very uh, strong focus of the Pharisees. They were greedy. Uh, I would suggest again that today we, we are in the world of televangelism where, where somebody gets up and says, uh, okay, whatever is wrong with you, I've got this vial of holy water. If you'll just send me 25 bucks, uh, I'll ship it to you and all your worries will go away. Their greed 
Uh, greed enters the church often for very many uh, reasons. And, uh, and in our own culture, it's becoming endemic. Uh, it doesn't matter where, where you go or, or where you, you want to look. I, I, this week I saw an NFL quarterback had a contract renegotiation that will guarantee him $250 million over the, last, over the next three years. It's going to guarantee him that he can get hit by a car and not ever play another down in the NFL tomorrow, and he will be paid $250 million. That is so out of line with reality uh, that it will ripple through the culture and, and lead to a lot of bad things. But the pure greed of the culture in which we live uh, is, is one of the things that, um, that the church must avoid. Kent Hughes says this, our degree of attachment to money and possessions is an unfailing indicator of the health of our souls. Uh, so where Kent Hughes goes in this conversation with this initial Pharisee and the, the concept of greed uh, is to beware that, uh, that it's not there in your own uh, thinking as well. When we go on to verse 42, we encounter the first technical woe, but it's the second grievance uh, that Jesus has. It is, uh, follows uh, in line with what we just saw. It has to do with tithing. Verse 42 says, But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. The Pharisees being legalists, of course. Uh, when you read through the Old Testament, the concept of tithing is introduced there. And there are a number of tithes. I've never heard any two people agree on how many tithes there were. There were there was tithes of this uh, that went to this place, there was tithes of that that went to that place. Uh, but the concept, the, the general concept of giving 10% is introduced. And the Pharisees, of course, were pros at, at uh, the commands and the concepts, or at least what how they interpreted those, uh, it in fact was, as one commentator states, the hallmark of the Pharisee. And you see here, this, this Pharisee is even getting down to 10% of his house plants. Uh, now there's one very minor, there's an error, not an error in the scripture, verse 42, that Jesus says, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb. The tithing of rue was forbidden in the Mishnah, so this Pharisee in particular seems to have made a bit of a mistake, but the problem is much, much larger uh, than that. What Jesus is saying is you're getting so technical with your money and yet you're forgetting everything. You're not coming to me with your heart. You're not giving for the right reasons. Uh, I think tithing is still a benchmark. I think it's only a benchmark. When you get to the New Testament, you will see the word tithe twice once it's in this passage we're reading, another one is an allusion back to the uh, back to Abraham. Uh, Paul in Second uh, Corinthians chapters eight and nine, you see Paul coming to a church, a Gentile church, saying these Christians back in Jerusalem are really in a hard time. The Gentile church that Paul is talking to was in a worse time, a time of plague, a time of starvation, a time of, of great difficulty. Paul still says, "I want you to search your heart." and see if you can give, even in your distress, can you give to your brothers and sisters back in Jerusalem who are Jewish believers? 
And the, the Macedonian church does that and does it uh, profoundly. And when I come to the New Testament, I think um, I'm with R.C. Sproul and some others. I think the, the concept of tithing, maybe you want to use it as a minimum benchmark. What bothers me is when, a, when I see people walk in and, and in great seriousness, do I tithe my before tax or after tax? And if my vehicle is used in my employment, can I see, can I, I'm, I'm right here back with the Pharisees when I hear people doing that. If you're doing that to try to, to cut every corner you can to get your 10% down to its very minimum, uh, you are on the wrong track. You are dealing legalistically. God is looking at your heart. Are you going to give whatever it is you get, whether it's 1%, 10%, 80%, I don't care what the percent is. God is looking at our heart and does not want us to die to greed. Uh, the problem, another problem, I think, with, with being legalistic today with tithing, imagine this quarterback. Uh, imagine... Uh, What's what would that be? Eighty something, eighty plus million, eighty-two million, five hundred thousand a year. Uh, suppose that guy gives eight point two million to the church, and then says, "Okay, I'm done with my," and he keeps seventy plus thousand million to himself. Uh, with all the the issues, with all the good that that person could do with all of that money, and today, frankly, he's chump change to the billionaires that are out there in uh, Silicon Valley and, and everywhere else on the planet. Today, it seems that a billion is the only number that, uh, that gets people's attention. And indeed, if you go to Washington, D.C., it's become trillions. <clears throat> We're throwing all of this money all over the place, except generally where it needs to go. So the point again is uh, Jesus is looking at the heart in these issues. Now, here's, here's a quote, Isaiah 1, 17. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. These are heart issues. Matthew 11, four to six, and Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. This is the passage we looked at when, when John the Baptist is, is uh, in prison and he's looking at Jesus and everybody was expecting, including apparently John the Baptist, expecting God to come in in the form of Jesus and he's going to just clean house. He's going to uh, take over everything. And Jesus says, you go back and you tell John that the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That's Jesus's response. That's, that's Jesus telling these messengers from John, you go back and see John and you tell him as vindication of what I am and who I am and what I do, it is that the poor uh, are not offended. The poor have the good news preached to them. The dead are raised, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. All of that is heart related. That's what Jesus is looking at out of you and out of me. The Pharisees, of course, did none of this. We've been through the, the parable of the Good Samaritan where they saw a person in need, but because he was not one of their kind, they crossed the road and walked past him and left him to die. Micah 6, 8. He has showed you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. 
1 John 3, 17 and 18. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Well, by you, I feel stuck to this back wall. If I'm wiggling, I can't get loose. Help me out a little bit. Let's move to the third woe, verse 43. Woe to me when I obsess over my own spiritual accomplishments. Getting closer to home here. Verse 43, woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Uh, this is of course a, uh, a reference to, to uh, seats of honor and, and this sort of things. Today we call them perhaps chairs, every university. I, was, I spent 20 years at Westminster Seminary running the development program, running the fundraising program of Westminster Seminary and I could, I, I have so many, so many stories of people who call me on the phone and offer gifts as long as they got something in return. Well, if you're aware of IRS regulations as I was, I had a lot of New York attorneys on my board, uh, Philadelphia attorneys, so <clears throat> they kept me in this straight and narrow. Uh, but I would have people call me, it was routine. Uh, for someone to call me in with, with I good intentions uh, for the most part. Uh, maybe somebody from a church like Second or any other church in America. And they would say, look, Billy Bob Busby has just gone to Westminster. He's a new student this year. He's come from our church and I want to help Billy Bob. And I'd say, that's, that's a goodness, that's fabulous. I'm so glad to hear that. I'm going to send you a thousand dollars and I'm going to send it, but I want you to give it to Billy Bob and send me a receipt. And I would say, I'm sorry. Uh, I will give your $1,000 to Billy Bob and he will be thrilled to get it. And we will be thrilled to help Billy Bob, but I'm not gonna send you a receipt. And that person would say, what do you mean? I said, because you haven't made a gift. The definition by the IRS of a gift to a 501c3, a, a nonprofit organization, is that you've got to lose control of it. I think that's a great biblical analysis of exactly this verse. You've got to lose control of it. It's not for your benefit. Westminster was not a money laundering institution. I'm not going to give you a tax break when you have declared to me that all you want to do to give to Billy Bob. If you want to give to Billy Bob, then go give it to him. Go write him a check. Make it out to Billy Bob. Don't make it out to Westminster Seminary. I lost more people, more friends, uh, and had to uh, squirm my way through administrative meetings. Uh, what'd you do with that uh, donor, Bob? Uh, well, he's not a donor anymore. <laughs> oh my goodness. But I also had to sleep at night. At any rate, uh, pride, accolades, recognition, of course, that's all around us. Oh my goodness. Um, <clears throat> I, if, you, if, you haven't, if you're not familiar with a man named David Wells, you would gravitate toward the books he has written. David Wells, uh, I think now he's actually in a Gordon-Conwell Seminary Extension in Charlotte. Uh, Gordon-Conwell is a seminary up north of Boston, about 30 miles north of Boston in Wenham, Massachusetts. It's a good seminary. It's a bit eclectic for my personal taste, you, but it has some wonderful professors in various slots there. 
Uh, David Wells is one of them. Uh, David Wells started writing books. He got a burr under his saddle that was large. And he's, this was the first one, uh, not the absolute first thing he wrote, but the first one that I got uh, involved in. Uh, I, I wrote uh, the six Wells books that I read in rapid succession. Uh, this is uh, one he wrote in 1993. Uh, he wrote another one, God in the Wasteland, The Reality of Truth in a World of Fading Dreams, 1994. Losing Our Virtue, Why the Church Must Recover Its Moral Vision, 1998. You see where all of this is going? Uh, Above All Earthly Powers, Christ in a Postmodern World, 2005. The Courage to be Protestant, 2008. God in the Whirlwind, 2014. And he's still writing today. This one, No Place for Truth or Whatever Happened to Evangelical Theology. Uh, again, I recommend these books. Uh, he takes in page 235 here, he takes, uh, he takes exception to what happened in the world of seminaries. Up until the 19, early 1970s, anybody who went to seminary graduated with a bachelor's degree. But in our world today, bachelor's degrees are a dime a dozen. So what did the seminaries do? We've got to pump up the, the perspective of the minister. So beginning in about 1972, uh, if you graduated from seminary, you then got a master's degree. You were an MDiv student. You got a master's of divinity. Uh, wow. Uh, not too long after that, they started uh, feeling that that wasn't adequate. So now today we have a DMIN degree, a doctorate of ministry, which is... Um, basically ongoing uh, education, continuing ed. Uh, but now you're a doctor. Now, what's happening today, there's, because everybody is a doctor, uh, they're going to have to come up with something. I don't know what it will be. Grand Poopot, maybe. <laughs> um, but the point is, ministers, here's what John Piper wrote. John Piper, 2002, wrote a book called Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. Here's a quote from Piper. The aims of our ministry are eternal and spiritual. They are not shared by any of the professions. It is precisely by the failure to see this that we are dying. We pastors are being killed by the professionalizing of the pastoral ministry. The mentality of the professional is not the mentality of the prophet, of the slave of Christ. The more professional we long to be, the more spiritual death we will leave in our wake. For there is no professional childlikeness, tenderheartedness, panting after God. And I could go on. Uh, you see where, where all of that is, uh, is going. Uh, and it is a danger in the church. Uh, it, it, uh, it, it, of course, is, a, is an enormous, uh, low-hanging piece of fruit that you hang before seminarians. Uh, to continue, keep going. Don't don't stop with with the BD, the bachelors. Certainly with the MDiv. Uh, maybe not even with the DMIN. You can still get a PhD. Uh, but um, as you know, now with wonderful, glorious technology, uh, masters in business used to be somewhat difficult to obtain. Now you can get them online in about four months. Um, and you walk out with a master's degree that you can put on your wall someplace. The problem again, Jesus is talking 
to a Pharisee. He's talking to a person who wants to sit in the position of honor. When he goes into the synagogue, there were seats up front uh, where only the Pharisees could be seated. Uh, Again, I get back to Paul. You know that glorious uh, passage of Paul where he's saying, look, if you want somebody with accolades, I've got them. If you want to get in the same ballpark with me, I'll tell you who I am. I'm I'm of the house of so-and-so. I'm a a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm, I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread, and I count every bit of it as dirt, dung, worthlessness. As long as I can have my Savior, as long as I can preach Christ and the cross, him crucified, resurrected, and the champion, the heart, the God that has every bit of me. That is the attitude that Jesus is going after here uh, with this individual. And um, it's, uh, it's with us. It's with us today. It, it will never go away because pride is, is the root of all sinfulness. Um, what's the role of a member of a congregation, by the way? Pray for the church, pray for the seminary, pray for the pastor. Uh, I wouldn't have spent 23 years at Westminster Seminary if I didn't think it was, it was uh, frankly, the best place I'd ever been in my life. I will cherish the Lord leading me there. I'd never heard of Westminster when I went. I was in Macon, Georgia, uh, clueless. I... Not really change in that regard, but but at any rate, uh, I was talking to a man named Jay Adams. Some of you may, may have known Jay Adams, may have heard of Jay Adams. All I knew was my son, is, my new Sunday school teacher, was a guy named Jay Adams, and he seemed to know a lot about the Bible. Uh, so Jay and I started. Uh, he started counseling me. I didn't realize that's what he was doing, but but he finally gets to the point. I, I said, "Well, what in the world?" I've got these ropes pulling me this way and that way. He said, you got to go to seminary. I said, well, what in the world's that? I don't like dealing with dead people. He said, not cemetery, cemetery. <laughs> I mean, you could not have gotten a, a bigger doofus than me. Uh, here I am talking. It turns out he had just come from Westminster. He was the uh, chairman of the practical theology department. He had a heart attack and the doctor said, you've got to go someplace little and out of the way of all humanity. And that was Macon, Georgia, uh, where I was. Uh, and uh, Jay, Jay led me up to Westminster. He finally said, once I figured out what he meant, I said, well, where do you go? He said, so you go to Westminster. I said, well, where's that? I got to go to England? Only the Westminster I'd ever heard was Westminster Abbey. No, it's in Philadelphia. So that got us up there, and I will, will cherish that man's uh, wisdom. There are, there are thankfully good seminaries, not many of them, but there are some. Uh, I think, frankly, we've got one in this city. Uh, we've got an RTS network uh, that was, first president was a Westminster grad, but uh, that's neither here nor there. Uh, but, um, but we have some good seminaries in America. The vast majority are terrible places. And when I hear of a person going there, I am grieved because I know what that person is going to be taught. And it's not what this word teaches. Uh, but that's why as a member of a church, what can you do? You should always be praying for your church. Pray for seminaries, the good ones. Support the seminaries if you wish. But pray for your pastor. Pray for your pastor not to be taken the way it is so easy uh, to, to be heaped with accolades and this kind of thing and, and fall into the, the habit of being prideful 
uh, and um, looking for those kinds of things. Um, pay close attention, I had written. Do not let a Pharisee lead you to hell. Uh, there are many people, as we sit here in this church, and I'm so, so grateful and thankful for this church and its willingness to stand on scripture. There are many people in churches uh, all around this world today who are sitting there at the feet of men and women who are going to lead them into untruth and unbelief and possibly even to hell or at least uh, prevent them from seeing that that's where they're headed. Uh, so this is a very serious issue and we need to, to uh, realize that. Uh, obviously, I am not getting very far. Uh, so um, so we will we'll have to pick up in the middle of the woes. I'm sorry to lead you, lead you in the middle of woes. But on the other hand, uh, we need them. We need to hear them. And we will begin uh, next time in verse 44 with woe is me when I die spiritually on the inside and invite others to follow me. I think about uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Uh, the wrath of God is revealed against those who suppress the truth, who volitionally suppress the truth of Scripture. By the time you get to the end of Romans 1, verse 32, all of those people who have said, I don't want anything about Jesus, I want to live my own life, my own way, they're encouraging other people to follow them. That's where we're going to go in verse 44 with, with this. And, um, uh, I will. I will try not to be uh, not to fling out into into areas uh, of nonsense. But uh, nonetheless, this is a serious part of the of this eleventh uh, chapter of Luke, and one that we are all susceptible. Easy to look at Pharisees and scribes. Read what they wrote with these laws. They had more than six thousand laws that they added to the Ten Commandments, and we read that and we think, "Oh goodness, these foolish people." Well, uh, just keep looking in the mirror and look in your own heart and we all must stay straight to scripture and to this word. Um, it's not easy. There are a lot of things, there are a lot of ropes out there tugging in directions where we don't wish or, or need to go. Let's close in prayer. Uh, Father, we, uh, this passage is, is one that, that should make all of us uncomfortable because we're all sinful people. But Father, we've been given this alien righteousness, this righteousness that is not ours. It's not the sin that we commit that gets us in trouble. It's the fact that we don't see a savior who was sinless. We don't see a perfect righteousness in Jesus Christ, which we are given by your grace through faith. Father, help us to place our faith in Jesus and then to get to the word that his Holy Spirit has left for us and never ever get away from it. We thank you for good churches. We pray for those churches that need to get better. And we pray for those seminaries that they will have an epiphany that they will see that to leave the word of God is to leave the occupation they claim to profess. Father, help us in this culture, this culture that is greedy, this culture that is prideful, this culture that looks on the outside and how clean the cup on the outside with a very, very dirty inside. Father, forgive us of our sins, cleanse us with your Holy Spirit and draw us to your son and help us to get that message out to everybody we come in contact with. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.